just having, say, customer purchasing data, the, the loyalty data for a supermarket yeah. was very powerful because you could now drive recommendation engines or prediction algorithms and feed stock control, a whole bunch of other things. But now let's move that forward. Having the data is useful, but when did you have the data? When did you come to know of this change? That's where the next focus area is because it's not enough to collect the data. You know, data is the new oil and, and data is the lifeblood of the modern enterprise, all of that good stuff. We know data is important, but there's certain use cases where the timeliness of the data is even more important. That's where you extract the value. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show with me, Chris Adams, and that fella over there, Sam Gregory. Uh, I've been away for a couple of weeks. How are you doing, Sam? I'm okay. It's been lonely. Did you miss me? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, I forgot to do the thing. What What is this show about? Just so we can tell a listener. Reveals the magic behind the magicians or something. Oh, no, you've messed it up. It's the magicians behind the magic that is the everyday technology. Look, I nailed it first first time. I just forgot it. Anyway, <laughs> so today we're talking to Jamil Ahmed, distinguished engineer from Solace, uh, which is a pretty deep conversation about event-driven architectures. So you didn't really actually get much of a word in here, actually, Sam. So, I mean, I've, I've been away for a couple of weeks on the intros where you've, you know, led the way, but this one's mainly me, I think. Yeah, I have no idea about it. I, I kind of know about it. It's, you know, it's every every different service is kind of listening in on events and responding to those events rather than fetching them, I guess, maybe. Well, you'll have to listen in and see what happens. <laughs> I should, maybe should have done that at the time. Maybe you need a refresh. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you on the outro, see if you learned anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm front end. I'm all front end. So this stuff can be left to you guys. Yeah. So we talk about um, about his introduction into the event-driven world uh, whilst he was working for the now defunct Lehman Brothers as well. So we get into some uh, some credit crunch excitement here as well, the big recession of, uh, of 2008. We'll be talking about the environment he was in and around the collapse and also how event-driven architectures have evolved from the algorithmic trading world to become the default way of doing business for modern real-time organizations that need information now while it's relevant. Well, if I do remember one thing about this episode, I do remember that Jamil was very excited to be on the show. And that's always nice because you, you know you're in for a good show when, uh, when the guest is particularly excited and it makes us excited. And then we, uh, we will have a really good, relaxed conversation full of deep insights. So it's pretty cool. No, no, I think it's a good one. But while we're actually talking about that, there is one thing I wanted to bring up. So in one of the teams I'm working in at the moment, one of our, uh, our engineers, she'd been away at a conference and she brought back some exciting stuff to talk about. And so I want to share a little bit of that with you because she was talking about the new stuff that's coming out of the ECMO organization for JavaScript. So this is more in your, your alley. It's on the front end. Are you familiar with the temporal stuff that's coming in as well? Nope. Temporal is pretty cool. So as everybody knows, I think um, date time in JavaScript has been a complete pain in the ass for, for pretty much um, forever, right? Yep. So there's a new um, proposal coming through, which I think should be live. I should have checked this earlier. should be coming live uh, in, I think, June or July. Uh, we're actually just in June, so I guess it's July it's coming. And um, it is going to now allow you the ability to use temporal.now instead of having to use like... Um, the traditional sort of date object or um, additional libraries like Momentum, uh, or not Momentum, Moment. Uh, yes, and uh, so it, it's actually pretty clever. There's, a, there's some nice stuff in there where you can get it to work out instant 
intervals instant times like instant yeah absolutely intervals you can get it to do conversions you can do time zones it's um it's it's pretty nice actually and much easier to work with because i think every project i've ever worked on there's always some date time thing or you're having to battle with a server or something along those lines i did actually know about this you just treat you've just reminded me but what what stupid name temporal i've just defined what does temporal mean uh, time <laughs> is it yeah let's let's de- let's define it let's define it why can't it just be time <laughs> temporal is literally relating to time all right okay so there you go now you know you've learned something for the day very good well uh with that i'm uh, i'm i'm a t- currently attending london tech week and it's my second day today so um what, what did you learn from day one i learned day oh my god well i mean no shade thrown on them but it's a bit of a bit of a nightmare to be honest it's uh, the queen elizabeth center queen elizabeth ii center in london and uh it's not an event space for all the you know you're all on different floors it's really hard to kind of like mingle with people and all the rest of it it's, it's a bit of a disaster to be honest but oh and, and the main headline i don't know the main headline stage no one knew this but only certain people have access to the main headline stage which all of the great talks are on so Everyone's just kind of like, what? Waiting outside the uh, main stage for age yesterday for them to say, oh, only, only a few people are allowed in. So I was like, oh, geez. Did you get in? No, 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 of course not. I didn't have the right badge. Oh, no. So anyway, the uh, yeah, yesterday was all about education, a little bit of sustainability. I think sustainability is kind of running throughout, which is quite good. A bit of Web3, a bit of NFT stuff there. And the it was education and kind of healthcare was the kind of key topics. And then today it's m- more heavily on sustainability and another topic, but I'm, I'm not too sure. I'm more excited about today and tomorrow than I was of yesterday. But it's been fun. It's been fun mingling and getting to know people and uh, chatting about what they do and what I do. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's, it's been good to be amongst the buzz. So what are you excited about today and tomorrow? Today, I mean, it's just the the the, the topics. Like I say, it was uh, it's more sustainability stuff today rather than uh, the education stuff or whatever. So, yeah, uh, let's have a look. Let's have a little little look at the agenda. Uh, Future of crypto is the first one, which I'm. Oh, I've missed that one. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that started at nine. Um, lots of climate stuff today, actually. From blockchain and decentralized economy, that's pretty good. Rise of deep tech in the global startup ecosystem. Well, the ones that you can get into, you'll have to report back next week and tell us which ones were good. Yeah, I will do. I mean, I, you know, there was there was a couple of good ones yesterday, and uh, of course, went to uh, Jelly Smacks thing as well last night. That was quite fun. Oh yes, because we have uh, we have uh, one of the Jelly Smackers on our show in a couple of weeks' time. I guess a couple of <laughs> yeah. weeks, a few weeks' time. Yeah, it would be it would be probably August now, but uh, yeah. All right. So, well, I hope you're ready for this one, then, listener. Hold on to your hats as we explore the world of algorithmic trading, uh, events, and real time data with Jamil. My name is Jamil Ahmed. I'm a distinguished engineer at Solus. And at Solace, we are on a mission to help enterprises become more real-time and event-driven. Well, thank you for joining. So event-driven, what, what do we mean by event-driven? Sure. So the event, event-driven is your kind of technical answer to the business imperative, which is to become more real-time. So we can, we can get into a little bit more detail in terms of um, 
what that is and and i i love your tagline by the way for the for the podcast <laughs> in terms of you know the the magic behind everyday technology mm-hmm. solace is part of that magic and and we don't have that kind of household name awareness but we're behind a lot of the household brands that you may be aware of so i, I do want to um kind of enlighten you a little bit more as we go on here well, we can start with some name drops then. So who are these household brands? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Barclays, from a kind of um, bank perspective, is definitely one of those household um, household names. And others, because you know some of these companies consider what they do with technology as a business differentiator, it's, it's given them a competitive advantage. We don't have a whole lot who are publicly kind of declaring that they use Solace. But those that do on the flip side are very, very vocal. <laughs> so Barclays is, is definitely one that we've, we've been public with for, for a long while. NASA in, in the States. Yeah, it's a pretty big one. It's definitely a pretty big one. <laughs> I've heard of them. Yeah, Royal Bank of Canada. Um, we've got Daimler, you know, the owner of Mercedes, again, publicly stating that they use us. So, so we're actually in um, that magic across lots of verticals, across lots of different kind of use cases. So what? So what exactly are they using the product for then? I mean, what, what's where does Solace fit in in terms of you know the event-driven world? Sure. So if we wind ourselves back, um, you know, a couple of decades, this the technology that Solace is has been around for a long while, and it would have been known as um, message-oriented middleware, for example. So within the middleware space, um, middleware as a category, you could say is about um, helping distributed applications kind of communicate with each other, so inter-process communication. In that subset, messaging middleware is quite a niche. And then I would say even my background actually is within low-latency messaging middleware, so a niche inside a niche. And my kind of background kind of mirrors quite well where Solace has been as well. So Solace has been powering this kind of low-latency messaging need within kind of capital markets and investment banking for the most part. And now we're finding that this ability to communicate across devices, across kind of on-prem and cloud, across geographies, that's become a more common need. And if we take the the Mercedes example, um, you've got cars that have now a lot more compute power and sensors than they did, you know, several decades ago. So, so you've, you've kind of got computers on wheels or data centers on wheels. That all needs the same kind of connectivity, data connectivity. And that's what Solace is enabling. Right. So are you talking about messaging going as far as sort of IoT then? That's right. Yeah. So whether it's an IoT sensor that's kind of reporting on your GPS coordinate or humidity settings, it's still a, a discrete kind of push of data, right? And, and that fits quite well in this kind of message-oriented paradigm of communication. So a sensor is not pushing data to every single kind of interested party or interested app, but push it once and let that message go to wherever it needs to go, right? So that's how we would have been describing this space, message-oriented middleware. And in the capital market space, you, you might be thinking of, you know, bankers, and Wall Street, but these banks are actually huge software houses. They're, they're, they like to describe themselves as tech companies with a banking license. So <laughs> these are the entities that have been doing this. And that technology has now become more mainstream. 
And event-driven, to get back to your point, event-driven and event-driven architecture is the current way of describing um, how you organize your data flow, right? And, and the real-time aspect, which is where this all ties in, is to say, I want to know when a piece of data has been generated or a state has been changed as it happens. That's the event-driven nature of it. And some of your listeners might be thinking of, oh, event-driven, I've heard of that before, right? It's, it's, that's not new. And it's because in GUI development, it's, it's been a concept that was well understood. You know, there's a mouse click event, there's a hover over event. There's various events that are happening across your kind of user interface. I want that to drive some process, some function. And it's because GUIs needed that responsiveness, right? The, the real-time nature. And I, I need this to happen as the user does that, right? So this is now taking that event-driven idea of being, you know, uber responsive, very real-time, to now how you organize your whole business processes, right? You know, businesses can now think in terms of being event-driven. So they can be saying, I want to kick off this, this recommendation engine as the user say, insert something into the basket, not after the fact. I don't, I don't have value from kicking off a recommendation engine if the user has, say, checked out or navigated away already, right? So this, this is the real-time aspect that more and more industries are looking for, more and more verticals are looking for. And so the same technology that's been doing this within the kind of banking space is now applicable to, to enable these use cases as well. So just taking it back a little bit then to talk a bit more about the origins of this. So, you know, you're talking 20 years ago, you're talking like the enterprise service bus. So I guess the competitors are probably what, Tibco, BizTalk, those sort of things. Yes. But it's actually older than that as a technology stack, right? As, a, as an ESB. That's something that, w- that comes from 80s and potentially before. Am I right? Yeah. The, the concept of distributing data in this way um, has existed. And, and you could even say ESBs at their core have a messaging capability. So it's, it's, a, it's one of those foundational things that is, is sort of like plumbing, right? It's, it's, it's almost expected to be there once it's working well, you don't really care for it. But if it stops working, it's, you know, it's, it's chaos. <laughs> so it's been one of those kind of utility type technologies. And there's been a scale to that as well. So ESBs typically would not have been in the kind of low latency or high volume space, right? That's and so kind of where Solis differentiated is to say we're going to take care of that kind of super sophisticated part of that need. And that need was was ultimately Wall Street banks competing with each other. It, it was a race between themselves. And this is where this technology innovation came in because you could, for the for the first time, actually put a dollar return on investment on some te- technology being adopted or put in place because it was suddenly making you faster than the next bank on the street, right? This is sort of the origin of algorithmic trading then, I guess. It's all part of that same space. So high-frequency trading, algo trading, this is all... Um, in the race for being fastest, right? Being being the fastest to act on a market event or the fastest to execute a trade, and this is the space that I began <laughs> as as a graduate. Right? So I, I I joined kind of Lehman Brothers as as my first postgraduate employer. Oh wow, classic! <laughs> all the way <laughs> up to the bankruptcy that caused the global financial crash, right? 
So wow, yeah. And and from a technology point of view, actually, surprisingly, it was like a, a huge opportunity for me, regardless of of, of the, the the Lehman Brothers bank going bankrupt. Technology is still technology, right? So the technology platform still had to continue. And when a, an, another bank or two banks came along to acquire what remains of Lehman, Barclays Capital and, and Nomura, they were interested in the technology platform continuing as is, right? So kind of engineers like myself were pretty much for, for perhaps a, a six-week period. After that, we were kind of continuing as though nothing happened because we just had a, a new bank's name on, on the building of what we're what we're doing, but essentially the trading platform, what the offering to the market was continued as before, because the bulk of that is technologists and technology, right? So when everyone was being walked out of Lehman Brothers, everyone's carrying their boxes, were, were you still at your desk? <laughs> yeah, because um, that, so that's the kind of business people, right? The, the bankers who could even say, led themselves into that situation. But the, the technology platform behind it still had value to stay intact and be acquired, right? And so for us, it, it was, you're right, it was, we were still at desk. We were watching the news of the, the traders, for example, leaving. But for us, we were still, you know, put on, on our seats, right? So That's fascinating. I, never, I don't think I've ever heard that side of it before, that, you know, the rest of the company is being walked out of the building and you're still sat at your desk, still, still doing still doing stuff yeah and and this this space actually you know was very interesting in that as a technologist in that space right you had an acquisition happening of you know the the lehman business and we were in a very kind of strange situation where the the middleware platform that that was in place and it was connecting multiple geographies, multiple data centers, all as one kind of uniform mesh. Suddenly you had four legal entities involved in terms of where that's, that mesh connects out to, because you had Lehman Brothers in administration for Europe and Americas as a, as a separate legal entity. And you had Barclays Capital who had, owned, who had bought the US side of it, and then Nomura who bought the kind of Europe and Asia side of it. But four legal entities connected by a common messaging middleware bus, right? And, and that's the, the kind of strangeness of the situation here. Because Lehman had done that so well, where everything was globally connected, whether you were deploying an application in London or New York or Tokyo, it all had access to the same kind of data flows. It could push data and be available in another region just as easily. That then became a detriment because, oh, we, we can't be having data flowing from these different legal entities, right? So one of my kind of projects that I was involved with almost immediately is, oh, we've got to now disconnect this global connectivity mesh. Right? We, we can't be having this free flow of data anymore because, you know, we need to start snipping out some of the branches <laughs> to disconnect. And um, so, yeah, if being in this space, in, in this kind of middleware or integration space, having an, an event like that, which is a business acquisition, and then at the same time, we're expanding to be what Lehman was previously, especially from the Nomura perspective, where I was on the Europe side, you you have quite a lot of kind of technical challenges and, and you're really at the heart of it because like plumbing, 
this stuff has to be done well and you do it once and then everything else is building on top of that. All of your apps, all of your algos and your trading, et cetera, does not work if these foundational pieces are not connected and working well. So what, what sort of information, what, what data were you moving around? Is it actually the execution of trades or is it the, the responses as a result of the trades or, or all and everything in between? It's pretty much all of the above, really, right? So you had um, market data as one category of, of data, which is, you know, what's happening out in the market, what's the price of Apple share, for example, or what's the, what's the conversion for sterling to dollar? You know, all of that falls under the category of market data, which is, by its nature, is wide dissemination, um, as in there's multiple parties, multiple systems, multiple human users interested in seeing that. So there's that dissemination of that. And that's market data is actually where you could say messaging middleware began because of that challenge of broadcast type of data, which is push it once and then it needs to go to whoever has interest. Right. So that's 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 the whole paradigm called you know publish subscribe. So one publisher and then there could be zero to n subscribers. You're not building yourself in this coupled fashion. You're, you're just pushing one subscribe as many times as you need. Right. Was this part of the drive? Because I've heard, I've, re- I've read about some of the stuff that was going on within sort of Canary Wharf, et cetera, et cetera, about, you know, the, the goal of being able to execute the trades as fast as they possibly could, because obviously your algorithm, your algorithm in, in your algo trading doesn't stand too much if you can't execute it quickly. So it is, it, was that the goal of some of this, uh, some of this event-driven platform? Yeah, so that's that's the goal. It was the goal of Lehman and it's still the goal of, of some of these major investment banks um, still in the market, right? So the goal, you know, there's there's tick to trade is, is a phrase that you might hear in this space, right? So the tick is the market data that's come in, right? Or, or the or the change in, in some state that you need to react to for your algorithms to react to. And how quickly can it process that and send the trade out? to the exchange so that it gets filled, right? So that whole end-to-end flow needs to be super optimized. And roles like myself become this kind of multidisciplinary, um, you're part network engineer, you're part, you know, Linux sysadmin, you're part software developer. (laughs) To do that well, you need to actually condense down the whole stack and treat it as one entity to tune, right? And and that's, that's really, you know, where the magic has been, right? There's a lot of technical knotty problems being solved in just that space, right? And, and that's where I've been operating. And so how how fast does the system need to be to be able to optimize that sort of tick to trade? What, what sort of time are we talking in presumably milliseconds? No, so actually um, it, it can go all the way down to nanosecond latency if you're measuring it. Really? And the way you do that is by having your processes even completely cut out the network and OS stack and then just do shared memory-based data copy. <laughs> wow. Right. So that's one extreme. And, and your typical kind of high-frequency trading al- um, algos are operating in that way, right? And, and they're just, what I was describing before, collapsing down the whole stack. Sometimes that means you're eliminating parts of the stack as well, right? So if you're, say, doing any network communication, don't rely on the operating system's TCP IP stack. Bring that all into app space. Um, That's called kernel bypass. But that's another example of how 
you're really looking to squeeze out latency wherever it may be costing you. Wow. So can we expand on that a bit more? Because I don't, I, getting down to nanoseconds, that's fascinating. Because you've got this event-driven system and we'll talk more about all the event stuff. And, uh, you know, I want to go through like, how, do you, how did you split this out of, you know, when you went through this migration? But like, fundamentally, how do you have an event-driven system that you're stripping out the hardware stack to, or even, you know, the infrastructure, I suppose? How, how do you have an event-driven system you strip down to, to get to nanoseconds? Because that's incredible. Yeah, so all of this is part of a, a spectrum of latency requirements, right? So at the nanosecond edge is, is the, the thinnest part of the wedge. Then you would have other applications that are you know, doing microsecond latency, right? Because they can't be you know, all co-located on, on the single host because there's a distributed nature to it. Perhaps it's involving humans, for example, you know, getting a, a request to trade from a client at the end of the phone to be able to then you know click some buttons on a GUI and then it does stuff with the algos, right? So there's there's a spectrum of latency needs and milliseconds is is really where you've got a kind of multi-geo component. So maybe a request for some kind of foreign currency is originating in Tokyo, but then it gets processed in London or New York or wherever, right? So whenever you've got multi-geo and, and you know you can't get around the speed of light right so the, there's a certain flow of latency between regions even though there's a lot of kind of innovative stuff going on to kind of reduce that as well across all these different use cases different kind of latency needs the one thing that's common is how do i make all of this complexity easy for app developers right or, or the algo developer for example because you can't imagine kind of low level detail Having um, having that awareness with every single developer or you know kind of algo developer um, to to be effective at their role, right? So what middleware or, or technologies like Solis then give you is a simple API to push and receive data, right? So you know if you need to receive market data, you know join this kind of solution, and that's going to bring it to you even if it needs to cross oceans. Right, or it may even be copying across memory on the same server. Right, that is abstracted for you. Right, and and that's where the ownership of middleware is right? to to make that effective. You could even you know nowadays it's described more like a platform. Right, this team is responsible for providing you the platform to build apps on. Right, and the app developers don't really have to get into the nitty gritty detail, but somebody has to. Right, I mean, you mentioned about abstracting some of this stuff away from developers, like. How good do you have to be to be a developer in somewhere like you know Lehman before it dispersed, or or is it abstracted enough that the rest of the system is just fast enough? And as long as you program within a certain uh, window, your application is going to be fast. If if you're in that kind of category of the ultra low latency or the low latency developer, right? You, you can't get away from having to have knowledge of what the stack looks like underneath the code, right? Um, there's an inevitability there, but the platform can go a long way. So for example, if once upon a time it would have been low latency development is all in C, but nowadays Java is quite a contender. But to make Java work, you've got 
you know, zero object collection or garbage generation type solutions that you need to build on. And again, this is one of the kind of tools that Solace would have been given to the developer, right? As in, oh, if you use this API for receiving and sending messages, here's the garbage collection free version of it. If you're, if you have to be in Java or if you, if you can be in C, then you'd get a lower latency. So it's that wedge, right? You've got to kind of draw the line on how much latency is acceptable and take the complexity um, to, to enable that. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back to the example you were talking about with Lehman having to deal with that migration. So, what what technology was this? Was the event uh, middleware running at the time? Because this is what two thousand and eight, I think, is the end of two thousand and eight. Lehman went bust. Yeah, so at at the time, it was a um, predominantly Tipco, and and Tipco is one of the vendors that have been disrupted by Solace and others. Right. So at the time, as you can imagine, you know, this, this is a space that moves very, very fast. Right. So if you were a relevant vendor for the 90s and 2000, doesn't mean you're still around for 2010s and 2020s. Right. So it is it, that cutthroat that if another vendor could come along and reduce that latency or make it a little bit more easier to do some of these use cases, then you're in immediately. And, and that, that was the kind of very fast-moving nature of capital markets IT or, you know, high-frequency trading IT because you could take a bet on something that's really up and coming and a very small vendor perhaps and, and is operating just in this niche, but you know the latency reduction could give you a business upside that is worth proceeding with. Right. And, and that's why you could you could kind of move very fast on this. And Solace was one of those disruptive middleware vendors, really. And, and the way kind of Solace did that is to say, actually, you know, this messaging middleware stuff that's happening in software right now, we've got an idea. We've put all of that logic and baked it into a hardware chip called FPGA. So that was the, the kind of step change, right, to be able to say, you, yes, there's a need for this messaging middleware, but it doesn't. You can do better than it being in software. We're going to put it in in hardware and completely eliminate the operating system and all the other sources of latency to give you that speed. Right, and and that became Solace's reason for being. So let, let's just come to that in a sec. I mean, uh, the the other thing I wanted to to get out of the, uh, the this migration. Um, was there an advantage to the fact that you were using TIBCO that allowed you to move quicker than you would if it was some other sort of you know, integration across different geographies? Yeah, so it helped having a bus like this in place, right? So we don't necessarily have to focus on it being TIBCO. But what Lehman did well was see the value in a messaging middleware kind of construct and do that well to connect everything, all regions. So everything appears as though it's a flat network, whether you're in Tokyo or London or New York, right? And, and even that alone was a huge win for app developers because they don't really have to worry about how do I access some data that may not be in the same data center as me. How did you actually deal with it then? Did you end up like sort of replicating parts of the system or just taking bits out of it? I mean, I'm just curious how you break that up into what two or three different entities. So when it was broken up, there there were you could say crossing points, right? Where 
you know, London was connecting to New York. And it was, it was cleaner in that everything that existed in New York became the Barclays Capital legal entity. So we can't be having any connections to it. So it was mostly a case of snipping those connections, basically. Wherever we see there's pathways that allow data to move from Europe to New York, disconnect those. And then on the flip side, we had the business that took over Lehman had their own middleware solution. So they, again, were brought into the middleware messaging kind of concept, but we're not using the same vendor. So again, from an integration person's point of view, right, how do you get these two things, you know, two disparate technologies talking to each other? Again, there are solutions there, but it was a case of disconnecting on the one hand and reconnecting on the other, right? So, <laughs> so this is what I mean, right? The, the, the bankruptcy for a person in this space just in a compressed period of time, gave you so many interesting projects to, to get under your belt, right? And, and, and really see the nitty gritty of, you know, how technology enables something as simple as one business being able to be acquired by another and get going, right? And, and, and you know, get going quickly. So, so I, th- I think I'm probably right in saying that obviously there's a, you know, there's a big, there's a big usage of, you know, message buses, et cetera, you know, Tibco, et cetera, and, and being like the main protagonist, I guess, around this sort of time, 2008. And there's a huge evolution, I guess, over the next almost 15 years, I suppose. Isn't that scary? Over the next 15 years of message-based, event-based communication, especially as microservices start to appear and people start to make use of them more commercially, probably more outside of the banks. So, I mean, talk us through that sort of evolution as as people start to take more of a an advantage of messages and events. I mean, you know, it becomes a a thing in the world. I, I think you've hit it on the head, right? Um, technologies like microservices, adopting cloud, all of those bigger IT trends are kind of forcing a rethink of how does data move from A to B, right? And and how do we do that effectively? How do we get an abstraction layer in place such that we don't have to worry about an ever complex IT, right? And so let's unpack this whole messaging to event-driven architecture thing, right? So message-oriented middleware was, was you could say, version one, right? A message could be anything. A message could represent an order. A message could represent a, a sensor change. So it was up to the developer to figure out what a message should be for their particular app and their use case. To make that more mainstream, event-driven architecture is now specializing that message, that same message a little bit to say it's an, it's an event. So it's, it's something that's happened. It's a past tense verb. And it represents either order placed or temperature changed or car has braked. You know, it's, it's an event that you can then act on. And this is where the value comes in now because you're, you're elevating the event from just being this technical concept to now representing business events. It's, it's, it's inherently couched now in business vocabulary for whatever that business is, right? So whether it's order placed representing uh, e-commerce or um, something that's in the IoT space, right? That's representing, you know, an elevator has broken down or an escalator has broken down. All of these things are now events that are driving business processes. And, that's what's making it the mainstream now, which is 
the business imperative again, right? Um, I need to be more real time. I need to be more responsive. I need to know as things are happening so I can then act and react. But I can't be thinking in terms of, oh, this field in this database table has changed or this system has um, you know, just changed its kind of internal status and we've got to poll it to find out what's happened, right? It's, it's, it's this kind of point-to-point or poll-based kind of processing is not going to scale for what's needed in terms of being real-time, right? And, and that's the journey that Solace is now enabling to be able to say, we've done the thin edge of of the wedge, right? To be able to do low latency, we know how to do that well, and we also know how to do scale. So whether it's you know Mercedes coming in and saying we want to have twenty million cars on the continent connected as a as an IoT device, to we want low latency, the whole spectrum of being able to move data, right? Solis has done that is kind of battle hardened from that specialist space that I was describing, right? With like high frequency trading and capital markets in general. And now we're able to say this technology can now be applied for, say, disseminating aerospace data, right? So where are, where are your flights, so, you know, um, the GPS coordinate of each flight in the, the US airspace, for example, is something that's flowing across Solus technology. And it's very different from what I was describing before in terms of trading, but the need to move data, the need to move that reliably in a timely manner is really what's differentiating here. And so, you know, the events that we're talking about are, you know, you're probably talking millions more events than the sort of stuff that we're talking about around the, the time that you were working at Lehman, I guess, because we're talking about IoT and all those sort of things now. Yes. Yeah, so there's still a lot of events actually in the in the kind of trading space. One of our vocal customers and Royal Bank of Canada has has put out that across their mesh, they've passed in excess of 100 billion events a day. Wow. Right. And that's a global mesh with all the kind of trading zones like London, New York, Toronto, et cetera. So it gives you an example of the, the, the scale achievable. So if you then extend that same technology to get sensor events or events of, of kind of coming out of microservices or generated from cloud native services. It doesn't really matter what the volume of that is because we have a scalable architecture to kind of address that, right? What we're focusing more on nowadays is this ability to have a, a fairly abstracted layer of passing data is hard to get your head around because developers for the most part are used to things like calling an API to get data, right? If I call for this information, I'm going to get it, then I'm going to act on it. You turn that around by saying, it's an event that's going to be pushed to you as it happens, right? And that brings about multiple challenges, right? As in, how do I scale my solution? Because I am no longer in control of the rate at which it's going to be arriving at. I need to be scalable to the real world out there. Right. So that ties into things like I need to be deployed on uh, an elastically scaling architecture, you know, like Kubernetes in the cloud, all of those things kind of come into that. Or you could even say, actually, I need some sort of a um, shock absorber capability. I, I need to be able to consume all the events, but I want something to slow it down and meter it out to the, cap- the ability that I have to consume. So again, and that's the advantage of having a queue then. 
yeah, so that kind of queuing or buffering capability is what you'd expect to get from such an event mesh, right? So, so you've said you've said mesh on a couple of occasions. We talked about like buses as well. So obviously, there's a couple of different ways you can go about implementing microservices. You know, you could go for a point-to-point integration. Generally, not my preferred approach. Uh, you could go for uh, for a message bus based in- integration. Um, you know, a pub sub type thing. But you could also go for a service mesh as well. You, you, but you seem to be mixing those two terms. I think mesh and and pub sub. Yeah. So I w- there's been a little bit of a terminology evolution, right? So just the same way enterprises at one point would have been caring about just the enterprise, but now that's diluted to say it's enterprise and whatever cloud we're using, right? Or security concerns are now, you know, cybersecurity. So messaging middleware has similarly undergone this kind of evolution to say it's not in it's not enough or descriptive enough to describe it as messaging middleware. It's an event mesh of event brokers. So your message queue, your message bus that you were describing before, all of that is now kind of encapsulated under what's described as event mesh. And it's something that um, Solace coined as a term, as, as a description of this architectural pattern. But we did it in such a way that we didn't want to own it. And accordingly, we've got other vendors like Red Hat also adopting it to say, oh, we've got an event mesh solution as well. So to kind of carry you forward, right? If you're definitely familiar with messaging and, and message bars and ESPs, it's just part of that natural evolution to now land that event mesh and event brokers today. Okay, so imagine um, for for my sake, I'm out of date by probably a few years, I guess. <laughs> We've got uh, Kafka, say, something like that as an event backbone. How does that How does that change when I'm using an event mesh? It doesn't have to. Um, so you could actually even have Kafka in use today to power, for example, your kind of big data solution. But that needs input and output as well, right? So there may be something that's happening in the rest of the enterprise or maybe another part of your kind of use of cloud that needs to feed into your big data cluster. So again, event mesh could be what's what's carrying those changes, those new events into your Kafka cluster and anything that's happening in the Kafka cluster needs to come back out to to touch anything else. Likewise, it could be traveling over the event mesh. So it's very complementary. And you typically use Kafka for where it fits best, right? And, you know, what, what is it designed for? Let's ask that question, you know, log aggregation, being able to do that at speed, you know, that's where it, that was born, right? But, and then the solace technology that's, that's born in this kind of moving at low latency, high fan out, pops up manner. And if you need queuing capability, there's queuing as well. So they're, they're similar in the, in that they're in the same space of middleware, but they approach two different markets in a way. One one was born out of this log aggregation need, and Solace was you know more of this generic any use case data is data type space. So so Solace is behaving in a way that allows you to get that data in more easily. Then is what you're saying? Yeah. So you could have your Kafka installation be just another component on and off the event mesh, right? So everything, so if if we kind of rethink integration as no longer point to point or calling system A, calling system B, you're integrating around the event itself. The event is your contract in terms of 
what am I producing? What, what's it going to look like? And then what do I need to consume and what does it look like? You don't really care about the end system anymore. So in that vein, right, you could be consuming an event that originated in a Kafka-based system or likewise, you know, pushing something that ends up in a Kafka-based system. The event mesh or the solace kind of product here is to say, elevate yourself above all of that complexity to just have a, a, a mesh that you come on and off. <laughs> it's this on-ramp to a mesh and off-ramp to a mesh. It's, you don't really need to think about the plumbing in between. Let us take care of that. So I suppose that, I mean, how well, how does that simplify, say, if I want to build an app on the front of that? Because I guess, you know, figuring out how you're going to have a, a, a client-side app that integrates with a, a message queue like Kafka is pretty complicated because you can choose a couple of different solutions. You could go for, you know, I'm going to have an API that is just going to give me sort of access to a service that is connected to the queue, or I might have an API that is going to put a message on the queue and wait for a response, which may not be a great idea because I might be waiting for a very long time. Um, or you might have a WebSocket or something along that sort of lines that's giving you some sort of real-time interaction with the queue. So there's a couple of different ways I could do that. How, how does how does Solace behave in that scenario? So Solace gives you, you know, multiple protocol ways of connecting. So you mentioned WebSocket, you mentioned, you know, having awareness that it's a queue, the other protocols, you know, such as JMS as an interface to connect in. So think of Solace as this kind of Swiss army knife of multiple protocols to fit whatever your use case needs. So if you had an application that's kind of running in the browser and needs this fast bi-directional connectivity, it can have a WebSocket connection to the Solace broker to say, here's the messages I'm interested in, or here's the events I'm interested in. As soon as they arrive, trigger this callback, and then it's going to trigger this onward processing. And likewise, push data as it gets generated. So if, if a user in the e-commerce space is you know, navigating a website, added a item to basket, that's an event that gets pushed through the WebSocket connection to the event mesh or, you know, the event, event mesh is a network of event brokers. So if you push it onto the mesh and then anything else out there, which could be your backend systems, will be connected to the event mesh to consume what got pushed by the browser, right? So you can think of the data or the events flowing to wherever they need to and fit the use case with the protocol. It's not a choice that you're forced into, right? So you could have WebSocket. You could even actually have a HTTP RESTful interface to be able to say, this event that I'm producing, I'm actually going to do a post, HTTP post into the event mesh. And that's going to turn into something that may sit on a queue for a subscriber that wants that guaranteed delivery nature to be able to say, whatever gets generated, keep it in the queue until I actively take it off because the value that I'm deriving from it is from having the full sequence, for example, without any loss. So if I was doing something like this with, with Kafka as, a, as a, a, a raw implementation, I would be having to build a lot of that stuff myself. Is Solace taking care of some of that? Yeah, for, for the most part, if, if you did, say, have a, a mixed mode of, say, WebSockets and needing to do REST or even MQTT for a device sensor, you know, you could do it with Kafka, but you're, you're, you're bolting on quite a lot of components to support that, right? Um, 
yeah, you're adding services or you, you're finding other integration things that integrate into something like that. Yeah. So this is what I mean in, in that you can do it with Kafka, but it's a lot simpler to, to they, say, do it with Solace because all of that is just part of the offering, right? So that's the distinction, right? In that, yes, if you're familiar with Kafka and, and you, you can't get away from it for that particular use case, treat it as yet another publisher or subscriber on the event mesh, right? And, and then, then you're kind of hooking it up to everything else that might be happening. And that event mesh could be extending out to an AWS region, for example, or a Google Cloud region or Azure region. And, and that mixture of, I don't want to deal with the complexity out there. <laughs> I just want to push mm-hmm. and receive data is what you're getting here. Okay, so let's go into some of that stuff that you'd uh, teased us with earlier in the conversation. You talked about hardware chips and all that sort of nonsense. So <laughs> what is that nonsense? <laughs> Unpack that for me. What is, what, what's the hardware chip that Solis created? So in this crowded space of messaging middleware already existing, right, we had to differentiate, you know, what, what could we do to knock out the incumbent? And knowing that actually running this function in software means you're building a lot of the engineering around it. How do I make it resilient? How do I give it disaster recovery across multiple data centers, right? There's a lot of engineering that's happening to make what's seemingly simple software that kind of battled hardened, ready for the kind of whatever the market throws at it, right? So Solace saw this as an opportunity to say, that doesn't need to be in software anymore. It could be baked in to with technology called you know field programmable gate arrays FPGA is essentially putting logic on hardware so that you don't have to execute it through a CPU in a general purpose CPU, and that gives you the latency saving to be able to say this chip only does this function right it's not a general purpose CPU, therefore it can do it optimized for speed and high throughput as well right so you know. In, the, in this kind of space, you're talking about needing to push millions of messages a second, for example. So this, the where Solace began is a device that you can kind of turnkey wrap into your rack into your data center, and it gives you your messaging capability with network optimization, with OS optimization, all that stuff that you would have been building, all as just one piece. And that is, you know, still the biggest differentiating that there's nobody else on the market that can give you this, right? And even outside of banking, it has a has a pull because there are certain, say, security-conscious industries that want that kind of get comfort from this hardware approach because it's a you know much reduced attack vector for security. You're not having to worry about all the layers, right? What's my switch? What's the operating system? What's the patch level? All of that is just treated as one black box. So how does that work in a modern sort of cloud-driven environment? I mean, how do you get access to that stuff? Very good question. So that reflects the evolution of where Solace went next, right? So we started with this hardware. And then, of course, you you have to address the, the need to deploy in virtualized environments or in a cloud. So that turnkey approach lends itself quite well in this new world of containers, we can give you a container that represents the, your messaging capability or your event broker capability 
looks and feels just as as what it may do with the appliance if you had the appliance but now you've got it you got it in software and then all the flexibility of you know being able to do a docker hub pull and it's running on your laptop but there's got to be a performance difference right between the two of course yeah so and that that's why i keep going back to the the latency spectrum right depending on where you draw the line of how much latency penalty is acceptable, whether you're counting in milliseconds, microseconds, or nanoseconds, that's where you use the right form factor. But this kind of hardware space isn't for everybody, right? Because not everybody cares about the, the nanosecond or microsecond latency, but they do care about stability. They care about being able to handle spiky volume. Like suddenly you had an event like a new product release and, and, you know, your website's crashed because you can't cope with the inbound order rate, right? All of those things are then important. So what do you do? The software version can handle those use cases. It's opened up a completely new segment of the market, right? Say, I don't care about latency, but I care about scale and stability and and general burst absorption capability. And that then has, you know, a huge play in e-commerce, for example, especially for some of the brands that may spring to mind that have this bursty nature, as in a product release has just become available and you've got queues of people and likewise queues of people hammering their website. How do you deal with that sudden spike in inbound? So you put a technology like Solace in place to give you that shock absorption and the guaranteed delivery to be able to say each of those orders is important. We can't afford to lose them. We can't afford to time it out or drop on the floor for whatever reason, right? We need to collect all of them and scale up, maybe through the magic of Kubernetes and other elastic scaling solutions to meet that demand that's sitting in that queue now. So we scale up, deal with the backlog, and then we scale back down again. Those scale out, scale in kind of solutions can only work if you're taking care of the data delivery side of it as well. Right. So this is what how Solace is very complementary to some of these other new developments. So, so how, how do you sort of stick with that uh, exactly once delivery then? How do you guarantee that message delivery? Because that's, that's, that's tricky, right? It is. And you've definitely been in this space if, if you're asking, if you're asking <laughs> that question, right? That's, I've learned the hard way, yeah. <laughs> no, that's an age-old problem, right? How do you guarantee once and only once delivery, especially when it is a guaranteed mode? So there's certain tricks that, you know, the event mesh or the event broker can do, right? So if it can track the fact that I've, I've tried to deliver this and I didn't get acknowledged, something went wrong. So as part of delivering it to the next connected consumer, you can just do a simple flag on there to say, this is a possible retransmit, this is a possible dupe, right? So that can then trigger code on the on the receiving side to say, okay, I need to do some extra processing on this to make sure that I haven't already inserted this into the database, for example, right? So you 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 need your solution, messaging middleware solution or event, event broker solution to give you those hooks, those signals in the API that you use, right? That's part of the contract. How do I do this effectively and safeguard myself, right? So that's definitely one that's kind of been addressed. Well, I think there's a few ways of working around it as well, right? Because I mean, I uh, the last time I did an implementation like this, we 
actually built all of the consuming services to be able to handle duplicate data so that they wouldn't, well, they, they would just deal with, I suppose, more up, more of an upsert model in the sort of Cassandra sense that like if it's, if we've not seen this data before, we insert it. If we have seen this data before, then we update it so that you're actually catering for the fact that in an event-driven system, you are likely to have duplication or, you know, if you're upload you someone's uploading a file they're likely to do it several times because you know you're catering for humans uh. <laughs> yeah so that's exactly it in that you, you when you move to this mode of data movement right you know it's all, it's all asynchronous it's kind of intermediated by a broker you need to start coding defensively in the way in that way right as in could i have received it what's the flag to tell me if i did what else can i do right just to protect myself so yeah, exactly. And this is part of some of the enablement that we have to do to the market out there, right? Which is not everybody has had that luxury of knowing messaging middleware in the past. A lot of the companies that we work with today, for example, don't have that legacy, you know, ESB data center type mentality. Think of your kind of car manufacturer. They've suddenly gone from just manufacturing cars to now having to think about IT and code and services. Well, yeah, the software companies now, and that, that was that's a big jump for them. And and that leapfrog advantage that they have is of no legacy debt to carry, gives them the the flexibility to look at solutions in in, in, a, in a way that a bit purer, right? As in, I can look at this without being distracted by some of the gotchas of the past, because those gotchas may no longer be valid, right? They may be something that a vendor that's no longer around put out there as a problem in the market. But, you know, if you've been burnt once, you'd remember it, right? Some of these uh, enterprises that we work with are able to just trust the fact that, okay, this is this is the, you know, recent evolution of the technology that's dealt with a lot of these common problems. Does the platform come with an instruction manual then to sort of <laughs> bring everybody up to speed with these things? There's, there's a lot of um, kind of material out there in terms of, you know, our documentation, our community site, we also have free certification. So if someone was really looking to um, pick up, even from an event-driven perspective, I want to know what event-driven architecture is. How do I build apps? How do I organize my business around it? We have free certification that teach you just that, right? And that's kind of product agnostic. It doesn't really care if you're using Solus or not, because it's that different style of thinking, right? Accepting async updates, accepting the fact that I'm intermediated from my end system. In fact, that's an advantage. I don't want to know if my downstream is up or not because I want to keep on going regardless. That's for some use cases, some enterprises, this is radical thinking, right? <laughs> I think it is for most people. You know, it is really a different paradigm as soon as you start working in events. Yeah, and, and, and it's because as developers, we're not taught in that way from the get-go right is it's all about functions and and you know sequential flow of things and calling out for data and, and so it does need that kind of mind shift so a lot of what we do as part of some of our engagements is nothing to do with product or technology yet we, we want to do this enablement of here's a better way of organizing your services your microservices the functions that you're calling out to your cloud provider you know, it doesn't have to all be point to point, right? And a lot of the times that's the MVP, right? That's what's been put in place to see if the solution has legs. But then you hit the scalability bottleneck 
that then kind of you come back to the drawing board, okay, how do we do this better? And that's when you start thinking of asynchronous communications, publish, subscribe, kind of pattern intermediation of systems, right? And, and that's what we're, we're enabling. So let's just talk a bit about the IoT side of things, because I think that's pretty fascinating. So, you know, uh, we've talked about NASA, Mercedes. I think, you know, both of those are going to be companies that are going to have a lot of IoT stuff going on. In fact, I know NASA would have had IoT essentially before IoT was a thing. At least they would have had a lot of sensors and things that would be reporting back for the status as a during a space shuttle launch or something along those sort of lines. You know, they get, I don't know how they would even get that. I, I, think, I presume it's probably radio frequency that they'd be reporting back. That's me guessing, but you might be able to enlighten me. And then obviously from the Mercedes side of things, you now, you now have these computers on wheels, as you mentioned at the start of the show, reporting back a hell of a lot of data you know, how do we deal with the accuracy of the data that's coming back? And, you know, how do you ensure connectivity to make sure that they can actually connect into the the event mesh and get the data where it's supposed to be? So those are the challenges that we we expect the user to kind of hand off to the event mesh, right? And then so those are acceptable kind of you know requirements, and we feel they should be part of the responsibility of what the event mesh gives you, right? So take the example of how do I make sure I'm connected or how do I make sure the data is current? That's an important part of you know, event-driven architecture in that you've got to be able to act on the data that you receive knowing that you know, it is the most latest version, for example, or is there any kind of risk of it being stale? So IoT pushes that as a requirement right to the top because say... Unilever is another good example of a user where they've publicly blogged about their virtual ocean control tower. They want to approach goods moving across um, oceans on ships with the same kind of tracking granularity as you know aircraft in the skies. That's interesting. When you were saying Unilever, I was trying to think, where is this going to go? Are we having connected Marmite? I don't understand. But uh, <laughs> makes an awful lot more sense to be tracking ships. So <laughs> yeah, so so they they have taken this to the level that you know, where is a particular line item from a manifest? What ship is it on, and where is it on on the ocean at large? Right. So when you had crises like the the Suez Canal blockage. Right. You, you had companies that knew exactly what their impact is and had and move on to mitigation plans. And you had other companies who didn't know they were impacted until something further down the line was failing, right? Um, or failed to arrive. So this this is the, the shift you can take, um, you know, event-driven architecture or or more in more business speak, real-time communication right real-time business operations knowing exactly where and where things are so if you've got you know a gps sensor telling you your location and that's coming to you or you're checking it 10 minutes late right that position would have moved on by you know several knots at speed right it's it's not actionable it doesn't tell you anything with the suez example you don't know did it just make it past the blockade or is it still behind Right? It's not actionable data. It's, it's not something that even if you put onto a, a live dashboard, you can't do anything with it. You can't drive the business kind of fallback measures, for example. Right. So 
IoT and, and what's kind of event-driven, what's moving across an event mesh, this latency part of it that felt like it was just a niche, right? It's just the, the high-frequency trading guys care about. Now you see this kind of wider applicability, that as in, I need to know that this thing that's arrived, this piece of data, isn't stale by seconds and minutes and hours. And you didn't have that ability before moving to this kind of paradigm, right? Because you could be, say, doing an API call to poll for a change, but you can't run that continuously in the loop, right? You'd get in trouble because the service owner or whoever's on the other side will start complaining, you're hammering my, my <laughs> resource allocation because you're constantly asking for the same thing and nothing's changed, go away. <laughs> but moving to this kind of push-based model, you're getting a push as the state changed, right? And, and you're getting a reliability factor in terms of how that hopped across, you know, past multiple brokers to get to you, but you know it's the most recent version of that or, or the latency isn't going to be, you know, making it stale and unactionable, right? So a lot of what event-driven architecture is looking to achieve and, and why you'd want to even um, adopt this kind of solution is where you can drive business processes that you may not have even thought of before. Like you, you couldn't even consider it because you didn't have the data to hand, right? And on, on a kind of previous episode, you, know, you mentioned how just having say, customer purchasing data, the loyalty data for a supermarket was very powerful because you could now drive recommendation engines or prediction algorithms and, and you know, feed stock control, a whole bunch of other things. But now move, let's move that forward. Having the data is useful, but when did you have the data? When did you come to know of this, this change? That's where the next focus area is because it's not enough to collect the data. Data is the new oil and, and data is the lifeblood of the modern enterprise, all of that good stuff. We know data is important, but there's certain use cases where the timeliness of the data is even more important. That's where you extract the value. And in the extreme sense, more time that goes by since that data was available and you failed to act on it, the less useful it becomes, right? So there's, there's this imperative to kind of really act on it as soon as it arrived. And, and those are the kind of use cases that event-driven architecture is driving and that we, are, we at Solis are very excited to be part of, really. So, so how, do you, how do you ensure that connectivity, though? Presumably, it's not just um, for the IoT stuff. You know, because there are definitely good examples of like, you know, the NASA stuff, there's the Mercedes stuff. I can imagine, you know, Formula One based examples as well. There's a lot of like data that's being collected that it's imperative that it's fast in the same sense as it is for the stock market. Like, how, how do you ensure that connectivity? Because presumably it's not just, you know, traditional IP stuff. Is that where we're getting into uh, into the radio towers and things like that, microwaves and stuff? So if you consider the kind of stack of, technology right you've got apps on top you've got your networking protocols tcp ip then you've got physical links right whether it's ethernet or wi-fi or radio so we are operating above those right so connectivity to say how do you make sure it's connected a car could be connected by a 5g sim for example or picking up some sort of um, wireless mesh that's kind of citywide so it's, that detail is one layer below 
kind of what we do, right? So you're not really getting into like the firmware or, or along those sort of, or, or are you getting into the firmware of these IoT devices? No. So we were operating at the, you know, close to the application layer, but with the expectation that the protocol is dealing with some of the challenges, such as a blip in connectivity. If an IoT sensor was connected and then, it, you know, it went on into a tunnel and it came back out the other side, what data was meant to go to it and what data was meant to be pushed from it? How do you handle that pause, that break? How do you kind of recover the stream? That's happening at, at you know, at layers above in the protocol, right? Um, so MQTT, for example, is a popular protocol in this Internet of Things space. So we let the protocol do that well. And then we are just another technology that supports that protocol. To provide that integration to get it to where it should be to then allow you to make the decisions, yeah. Yeah, so we give you the API that allows you to do that simplified send and receive. And there's a lot of stuff happening underneath, of course. Okay, well, I mean, that's a, uh, this, I think this has been a really insightful conversation. Have we left anything out? Well, we've been bouncing around all these different use cases and verticals, right? But as you can imagine, it's the movement of data is really what's key, right? That's what's powering some of these functions, especially some, you know, like new product offerings. Like um, if, if, for example, your airline as part of your check-in process could know exactly where you were and how you're progressing to the gate and where you are in the airport product opportunities like giving you a push notification to say oh there's here's a new 20 percent off voucher for this restaurant and that part of the terminal because it knows you're nearby right some of those kind of innovation business innovation you couldn't even imagine implementing a decade ago right because the, the data wasn't there and then even if the data was there, it wasn't timely. Like the loyalty card example. Yes, we could know that, you know, what the purchasing history was, but if we're only getting that crunched and it takes three months before we can get value out of it, maybe the situation for the consumer has changed already. Right. So this this movement towards real time cuts across multiple businesses and is really an exciting place to be as as a technologist. Yeah, I think that loyalty example you're, you're talking about, I, for, for listeners listening in, I think we mentioned this in our previous episode that I was well, probably a decade ago when I was at Tesco. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we had, uh, we had all the club card data and the club card data was generally about three months out of date because it would arrive as sort of big batch of receipts that had to be processed by a, a subsidiary company called Dunhumby. Um, and then it would all arrive, you know, you'd, you'd get like your, your reports after it had all been typed up three months later. And then equally, we used to have an issue where you trucks would arrive at a store and it may or may not have the cages on it with all of the products that we needed to like refill and restock the shelves. That that that's a big shift uh, in a decade from where that was to what you're talking about us being able to do now. Of actually, you know, I think this is where people have wanted to go for a long time. It's where technologists have wanted to go because there used to, you know, the RFID chips and stuff. There was some examples probably a decade ago of people experimenting and trying to get stuff to work in prototypes on Regent Street. You know, you'd walk past a window and it would go, "Oh, here's a, an offer on this particular." shop you know i remember seeing burberry doing something along those sort of lines but it's all prototype stuff now what you're talking about is we're we're on the cusp or it's actually here we, we're actually able to do this exactly we're, we're actually here and that disconnected nature that you're describing in that past episode about you know why is it that 
the store manager's tablet, um, why can't it tell him what's going to be on the truck, right? It's because there was, you know, you can imagine a whole series of batch operations, right? They put in an overnight batch that decided what's going to be filling that lorry, right, or, or that truck. There's another batch operation that's dealing with the, the order request that the store managers have made, and they're, they're just not connected, right? They're not kind of seamlessly operating as one. That's what event-driven architecture hopes to kind of achieve, which is everything's an event and it's not trapped in these data silos. Like it's not trapped in the mainframe. It's not trapped in the shipping function. It's not trapped in the stock control function. It's just an event accessible to whatever part of the business wants to derive value from it, right? And that's how you can start thinking about how if I know a customer is doing X at the store, I want to be able to derive this new product opportunity or this this recommendation text, right? Or, or, you know, push something to their email or a coupon. The connectedness of data is really what's powering those new business functions, right? And, and a vendor of an architecture, we, we definitely need to see it more than just this technical term, especially for those who are familiar with it. It's really taking the responsiveness that you get when you're building event-driven UIs to now organizing your whole business in that responsive manner, right? There's no reason why the stock control function cannot be tied into recall management, to customer loyalty, to what's being loaded into vans and so on, right? Or even now beyond um, the e-commerce side of the business, right? Everything has to be working as one. And, and that's where you get event-driven architecture as being that magic behind the scenes. Ah, you've managed to get in the uh, the tagline there. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so, so this this is here now. This event technology is here now, um, and we can start using it. And we're going to see more of it over the next few years. But where's it going next? Where's it going next? Um, I think is definitely going to touch the the average consumer a lot more. You're you're going to realize some of these things are happening, and. One of the most recent things um, that we can talk about is the UK's energy regulator, Ofgem, wanting to move to how energy billing is done to a half-hourly basis. Right? They they want to move from what's currently a daily base basis, or you know, in some utilities such as water, is even worse. Right? You get a bill at the end of six months to say this is how much water you used. That's now compressing things down again to, to close to real time, not quite, but still going from 24 hours to a half an hour chunks is still a, a you know a leapfrog change. To arm you as a consumer with insight, where am I using my energy? What part of the day? And likewise, you know, with the example of driving new product offerings that we can't even imagine, there's no reason why once that data is available, you can't get tariffs that are smarter to be able to say, here's your unit price for this part of the day, and here's the unit price for that part of the day, and that's going to be different again tomorrow based on what the market conditions are, right? So you can be a lot more targeted around how you use your energy, how you kind of benefit from the natural peaks and troughs that are happening in the market for the price of energy to apply it in your own home, to be able to say, Okay, so it seems like things are a bit higher, so I'm not going to switch that washing machine on now. Oh, it's dropped again the next hour. I'm going to switch it on now, right? So it's, it's that kind of nudge economics, right? It's, it's not going, you know, the regulator is not forcing everybody to use less energy, 
But just by nudging you to even be aware of what you're using at the right granularity makes it a bit more actionable. And, and that's the theory of going towards, you know, reduced energy usage. And I really hope that helps to benefit the consumer and not the, uh, <laughs> not the supplier, because it does sound like that could be used for evil. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just an example of how, um, you know, having more data, more actionable data can then drive value and hopefully, you know, human betterment, human good as well. Well, yeah, and we've talked on other episodes as well about that sort of democratization of uh, data and energy. And hopefully, hopefully it's the sort of thing that's going to be able to power that. Because, you know, you, you wouldn't want to have that sort of stuff. You wouldn't want surge pricing for running a bath, would you? You know, like get on Uber. <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> well, we, we, we hope it doesn't go that way, right? But yeah, democratization of data, democratization, democratization of access to services, this is all in keeping with what an event mesh does for you, right? Because now your data is no, lock, no longer locked in a particular system. It's just something that I can tap into on the event mesh. It's, it's, it's like switching on the tap and then the water starts flowing, right? I don't really care where the water was pumped from. I have a need for it and it's flowing. You can think of events in the same way in that here's a specific event I'm looking for. I don't care who's putting it out there, right? I'm going to consume it and then I'm going to maybe put out another event of my own. And this whole daisy chain of events is what's then all of your microservices. That's, that's your enterprise's IT. Yeah, it's powerful stuff if people can uh, get their head around it properly. Uh, any final thoughts? Just the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a great podcast that you have here. And, and I think, you know, techies talking about some of the magic is is definitely useful. And we can very often operate in silos and, and not realize that, you know, things like an event mesh even exist, right? And that's really what, I'm, what we're trying to do here, right? which is know that it's there and then maybe it can solve my problem. Well, thanks, Jamil. I mean, I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but <laughs> but thank you for joining us on the show. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I hope, uh, I hope our listeners have. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks, guys. Well, that was a nice little compliment from Jamil there. It's nice to have someone on the show who's actually been listening and uh so <laughs> actually i actually been listening yeah. <laughs> before the show you know um and i actually enjoyed it it was pretty cool second listen sam did you catch any more of that this time around nope <laughs> <laughs> brilliant okay well we'll need a third time round. maybe you go back to the fred george microservices one now well, I will go back to finger puppets and try and demonstrate what event-driven architecture is. Anyway, listener, if you uh, if you've also struggled as, as Sam has, then we may be taking our some time if we ever find it to put together a finger puppet show on event-driven architectures. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> I think that's it. That's the one. Okay. Uh, well, join us next week for Neil Parker, who will be talking to us about IA. That's right, IA, not AI. IA stands for Intelligent Automation, which will be the topic of next week's show. We'll see you next week. So here we go. As usual, uh, do give us a five-star review on Apple and Podchaser. We've had a few more of them. Ooh, you've been listening. Thank you so much, dear listener. And of course, like us, wherever you see us post on social media. We've revitalized the Instagram now, so you should see the episodes trickling in. And rem actually, it's been nice doing those because it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. I remember this one. And people people are actually like, thinking, oh, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. I should listen to that one. So it's been nice. I actually had someone reach out to me this week 
and say, oh, like, this new episode looks really good. I went, hang on, I mean, that's from a few uh, few months ago. Sam must have kick-started the, uh, the, <laughs> the Instagram again. I'm trying to post like three times a day to try and get us up to speed before Thursday, but uh, I've always let it slack a little bit. But yeah, so I, I post a little story about my thoughts on the episode and then just post uh, on, on, our, on our wall. Is it a wall? I don't know, our feed post on our feed as if it was a, a live episode but yeah it's been people have been engaging and um reminded of uh or, or introduced for the first time some of our some of our back catalogs so that's been quite fun we should do that more actually we should do that though. we should do we should do yeah we, we should do because we've got some great content we were just reflecting how we've probably recorded about 70 odd hours of content so um plenty of tech stuff out there for you folks so yeah check in if you have any recommendations comments or thoughts you can drop us a line via the website i think there's an email address on there somewhere to hello at that tech dot show i believe uh yes and a contact form as well so you don't have to write an email you don't even have to yeah you don't even have to do that yeah you don't have to lift a finger all right well that's it i think we'll see you next week when we are joined by neil parker